The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Zero eight seven four one hundred one zero two gives you the last word by text or by WhatsApp. So our first guest today is the Tonishta and uh, Minister for Trade and Enterprise, Leo Varadkar. Minister Tonishta, thank you very much for joining us. I want to start, and we're going to have a bit of time to chat by talking about climate change measures because. It's very much in the national conversation after the weather of the last few days and what we're seeing happening in Britain and the rest of Europe. Are the measures that we're going to have to take, are they going to lead to a deterioration or a reduction in standards of living? Well, you know, I I think, first of all, I I don't think anybody in the world, unless they're... um, either insane or stupid at this stage could possibly deny the fact that climate change is happening. Um, I I was in England yesterday uh, for a trade mission and it was over 40 degrees, uh, their hottest day ever. We had 33 degrees here. um, And uh, this is obviously a a global phenomenon driven by um, man-made or humankind-made emissions. That's the the bit that some people do deny. They don't deny that climate change exists, Mm. but they say it's sort of a natural cycle and it's not anything that we're doing and that to do anything would actually mean a reduction in our living standards. Well, I suppose that they're two separate arguments, but I, I don't think that the argument that it's not, um, a, you know, anthropogenic is not not created by mankind really stacks up anymore. I think it's pretty obvious that, that it is caused um, by the emissions of greenhouse gases that we've been pumping up into the atmosphere for decades and centuries now. It's like a big duvet, if you like, over the earth. Um, and even just stopping them now doesn't make the duvet go away. So uh, a certain amount of climate change is now inevitable, baked in, could be permanent. So we have to adapt to it. And that's important. Um, but we also need to make sure that we don't continue to make it worse. Um, can that be achieved without reducing living standards? I, I believe it can. I fully appreciate that other people don't share that view. Um, but I'm somebody who, uh, I suppose, is, is, is an eco-capitalist, dare I say it. I'm somebody who actually believes that you can um, achieve a lot of climate action through new technologies um, and that uh, climate action can spur a lot of investment that will create new jobs, create new businesses, create new revenues. So to give you one small example, um, I would love Ireland to become uh, a net exporter of electricity within 10 or 15 years and a net exporter of energy within uh, a generation. That is possible. Um, and that is by okay so the main thing we do is develop we develop uh, our offshore wind we can produce many gigabits of energy or gigawatts of energy um, offshore with our offshore wind Um, add that to solar as well and there's some potential for solar in Ireland Uh, you bring that ashore you use it to produce electricity. We sell that to the grid. We're building a new interconnector with France at the moment. We have an interconnector with Britain. Uh, we, when we have surplus electricity, we sell it abroad. Um, or we can turn it into hydrogen. Uh, and you can use that hydrogen uh, to produce green fertilizers. Um, well, that would be a very good thing for farmers these days. Um, a green fertilizer that isn't so expensive um, in time won't be as expensive. You can also use that hydrogen, for example, to fire your cement plant or your aluminium plant. Um, in time, you can use the hydrogen to uh, run your trucks. Um, and you can, you can combine the hydrogen with carbon capture from, for example, uh, heavy industry and turn that into uh, synthetic fuels for aviation so we can continue to fly in planes. Uh, all these things, I believe, are possible. Uh, these yeah, but technologies who's going exist. to do that? Because we've been talking about offshore wind for quite many years now at this stage and mm. it hasn't actually happened. So who's going to do it? Is it going to be the state in the way that the ESB introduced electrification to the country 
nearly a century ago? Or is it going to be the private sector who are going to do all of this? Um, a lot of it has happened, by the way. You know, roughly 40% of the of the electricity that we now generate is renewable. And the objective now is to get to 80% and then move, the, move beyond that and do the things that, that I was talking about. And, and, you know, just to finish my point, instead of spending billions of euros every year importing uh, oil and gas and fuel from overseas, we'll be able to export it and we'll make money out of it and we'll have huge numbers of jobs, for example, in those new industries. So it is possible, I believe, to turn climate action into an economic opportunity and and therefore improve improve people's people's standard of living. has to be both. The only way it's done is both. And how much money will go into that? Well, it's going to require um, a phenomenal amount of investment, billions and billions of investment um, in and just take that one area, energy, and that is only one area, that's going to require uh, a huge amount of investment. And yes, it'll involve state investment, it'll involve state companies that operate on a commercial basis like uh, Airgrid, for example, Gas Networks Ireland, DSB, and then also uh, the private sector and private capital. And that's that's how you make these things happen. But it's not going to be an immediate thing. And yet we now have an issue whereby we have problems with the amount of gas we're likely to get Mm -hmm. into the country. And we've been told by the EU to reduce the amount of gas that is consumed between now and the end of the year. How are we going to be able to do that and make sure that everybody gets their supplies for heating their homes and that industry has enough gas for what it needs? Yeah, well, you know, we're going to have to study what the European Commission has come up with. Uh, The concern that the Commission has is that uh, gas supplies from uh, Russia may be reduced uh, and that would leave Europe short of gas during the winter. Um, That may not happen, but it would be imprudent not to prepare for the possibility. Uh, Thankfully, when it comes to Ireland, uh, we don't get very much gas from Russia. It pretty much all comes from the UK and, uh, if you like, from further afield through the UK and then also obviously from the carb field off Mayo as well. So we're less vulnerable than Germany. Germany would be our Austria or Central and Eastern Europe. Um, but we do need to prepare for that possibility. Um, we have worked out different scenarios as to what we might do uh, if gas supplies were, were constrained. What we face at the moment is, is a real problem with the cost of energy. It's not that it's unavailable, it's just that it's very expensive at the moment. Um, what we're preparing for is the possibility of uh, an issue not with cost but with supply. And, and that's a very different problem, as your, your listeners will understand. Well, there's an issue with cost and there's also an environmental concern about, for example, the use of gas to produce electricity that goes into data centres. Is it a good environmental thing for this country to be doing to allow itself to become one of the main centres for data centres? I think what we have to do is make sure that the data centres of the future are are powered by renewable energy and not by gas and coal and oil. Uh, And that's the direction of policy now for government uh, is, uh, you know, future data centres as far as possible should be powered um, by renewables and they can actually be helpful in terms of stabilising the grid in that regard because data centres have a constant demand for energy um, and will use the wind when other people aren't for example um, and can actually help to spur investment in, in, in renewables. A lot of companies now will do what's called a power purchase agreement where they buy uh, renewable energy for their data centre and that then helps fund the private sector investment in those new wind farms uh, which we need. Um, so I think that's the future. We're definitely going to have to slow down the number of new data centres coming online. That's already decided by government um, and then when they but start being added again. But that then have an impact on other investment from multinationals coming into the country? If the major tech giants, for mm. example, can't build new data centres or expand their existing ones, will that then dissuade them from the job creation they do in other parts of the country? 
Um, you know, I've had this conversation, obviously, with those big companies, you know, big companies that employ a lot of people, big companies that pay, pay a huge amount of tax that we then invest in things like housing and schools and healthcare and all the things that are important to us as a society. Um, the point that they would make to me, and they would make it very clearly and very bluntly, uh, is that we generally, want, we generally speaking, they want to keep their data, store their data, um, where their people, um, where their businesses um, are located. So, you know, the example, a chairman of a big tech company gave to me was this, you know, Switzerland is a huge financial services industry. Uh, imagine if the Swiss government told the banks in Switzerland to keep their gold bullion somewhere else, you know, we'll keep the jobs in the banks, but please store your gold somewhere else if you don't mind. You know, that just wouldn't work. Um, so what we'll have to do when it comes to data centres is prioritise uh, those that have a genuine economic benefit for Ireland. Some are just speculative um, and um, we'll have a less interest in them than maybe, for example, one that um, uh, retains the data of, of a company that employs thousands of people and pays hundreds of millions in, in tax. But there's one thing I think we need to bear in mind, though. You know, there's a lot of misperceptions about data centres. You know, one of the things we determined to be essential during the pandemic um, were data centres. Why do we do that? Because that's where your MRI scan is held. That's where your uh, lab results, your medical information very often now is held. Um, it's where your financial information, your banking details is held. When you, for example, use your phone, when you, for example, work from home, you're using data. You, you know, sometimes people don't realise the extent to which it is essential. Um, and, and it's not something that you can just you know, put in somebody else's country, like that's not a serious policy, either economically or from environmental One of the trends. reasons I bring it up is that they are responsible for a very large percentage of our emissions and they are still growing a number. And the agricultural sector, mm. which is also essential because it produces food for us to consume and to export, has been required to cut its emissions quite dramatically. Where are you in relation to that? I know Fianna Fáil Minister Charlie McConnell and the Green Minister Eamon Ryan were due to meet about this today. But what's yours and the Fine Gael position in relation to the reduction of emissions by our farmers? Um, you know, Fine Gael and the government accepts that every sector of society has to make its contribution to reducing emissions. Um, so uh, what we're essentially asking from the agri-food sector from farmers is um, somewhere between 22 and 30 percent. That's the debate at the moment. Um, from industry, which I'm responsible for, it's somewhere closer to 40 to 50 percent, maybe 35 percent. We haven't figured that out exactly. For energy, electricity, data centres, which you mentioned, it's 80 percent reduction. Uh, for buildings, it's 50 percent. Uh, so, you know, the least contribution that we're asking for from any sector uh, is the agri-food sector. Why is that? Because it is special. Uh, because we do recognise that it has to be treated differently. Uh, that involves food production, which is essential, and we need to maintain the amount of food we produce, not reduce it, because um, the world's population is growing and demand for food is growing, uh, and also because farming and agriculture is a way of life. Um, so, uh, you know, the government, all three parties, fully recognise that the contribution that we'll ask for from the agri-food sector is the least of, least of any sector. Um, but we appreciate as well that that'll be difficult to achieve and that we need to help farmers and the industry to do that. You mentioned between 22% and 30%. It has been reported that many of your own TDs and Fianna Fáil TDs are saying no more than 22%. That is as far as can go. If that is, is that your position, twenty two percent? Well, you know, like I'm not, I'm not directly involved in those discussions at, at, at the moment. Um, you, you, certainly, what you have to do, I think, or certainly from my point of view, people can get very much hung up on 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 numbers and percentages. You know, it's essential to their livelihoods. Well, yeah, but let, let me explain what I mean by that point. Um, like, what's more important that we spend an extra two hundred million on education, or that we decide how we'll spend it? 
you know, it's very easy to, 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 to use figures and, and not think about what, what's behind them. So when it comes to agriculture, um, what I would say is, do we know how we would achieve the 22%? And if we tried to achieve more than that, let's say it was 23 or 24 or 27, how would we achieve that? Like that's, that's, that's the kind of grown-up debate that I think we, we, we are having and we ought to be having a bit more. Yesterday's Irish Examiner quoted unnamed government sources as saying, well, if you don't make the cuts in agriculture, other things will have to go, such as, for example, second cars and families. What do you think of that idea, that there would be a reduction in, in if not the, uh, the herd of cattle, the fleet of cars that we have? Yeah, look, I, I think it's fairly harebrained. And, you know, I'm, I'm a member of the government and I'm not aware of any proposal to um, tell families that they can't have uh, a second car. I think that's, I don't know where it comes from. Um, and you, you don't either because of somebody making an anonymous comment. But unfortunately, these things get legs sometimes. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of scaremongering at the moment around climate action. Um, these targets are very ambitious. Um and we do have to do everything we can to achieve them. And, and I mean that, I genuinely mean that. Um, but, you know, we're not going to penalise and punish people if they can't be achieved. You know, let's say, for example, in industry, enterprise, business, I'm responsible for that sector. If we aren't able to achieve that 35 or 40 percent, um, are we going to tell, you know, Pfizer to close down their their uh, pharmaceutical plants? Are we going to tell, you know, Meta or Google to please leave our country? Like, of course we're not. Um, and if it's the case, for example, that we can't receive, we can't reach our transport emission targets, are we really going to say to people, we're now going to confiscate your car? Um, let's, just, let's just say we can't, you know, reach our building emissions targets. Are we going to tell people we're going to close down your house and move in with somebody next door? Of course we're not. And the same thing applies in agriculture. Um, they're ambitious targets. They're going to be hard to meet. But we're not going to turn around and tell people that we're going to stop you farming or take away your cattle. That isn't that isn't what's going to happen here. It's are not there about ways so that you might try and dissuade people from using their cars as much, such as in urban areas. Mm. If people do have access to public transport, should there are there ways that you might try and discourage families from having more than one car in those circumstances? I think that's already the case. You, you know, the price of petrol and diesel is very high. Um, it's never been higher. Um, uh, it's not cheap to buy a car. Um, after you buy a car, you pay car tax on it every year. And if you live in an urban area, it's increasingly hard to get parking, even residential parking. So I think there's a lot already there that dissuades people from um, a car ownership. I, I'd, I'd rather say, I'd rather say, what can we do to encourage people to go the other way and that means improving pedestrian facilities improving cycling um, improving public transport investments for example and things like the metro encouraging things like um, remote working and home working so people don't need to use their cars as much I, I, I think you know there's already a lot of stick when it comes to owning a car I, I'd rather I'd rather see us do the other things But one other thing before we take the break and it is related because a lot of people recently have complained about the price of petrol and diesel for their cars particularly people who have to use it to get to work but then they say they contrast that with aviation fuel being left untaxed. And given the damage done to the environment by airplanes, why does this government, and indeed international governments, allow such fuel to be untaxed when it clearly does such damage? Yeah, well, I should say, you know, aviation contributes between 2 and 2.5% two and uh, of, of emissions that cause climate change. So it's, it's a lot less than agriculture, a lot less than cars a lot less electricity so you know it's 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 significant but you know not as big as people may think about about two two and a half percent of all emissions relate to aviation um the main reason why we don't tax it is because we are an island nation you know it would be different perhaps if you could take the train from dublin to london or uh 
Dublin to Brussels were not, we're an island nation and we're dependent on aviation in a way that uh, other jurisdictions and countries that aren't. But one thing I'd really like Ireland to become a centre for um, is the development of what they call SAF, those synthetic aviation fuels. Like that is the future. Um, the future isn't um, stopping people from flying or telling them that they can't uh, go to work meetings in, in London or go for a weekend away to Spain if they want to. You know, that's not the future, in my view, that's the future for some people who have a very radical view of climate action. Um, I don't believe that's the case. I believe this, the solution is is through uh, those uh, synthetic fuels and those um, sustainable aviation fuels. They won't eliminate emissions entirely, but they can reduce emissions by, by 50%. And even some of the new planes being built um, at the moment, uh, they can already carry a 50% um, sustainable fuel mix. Um, the problem is not enough of it is made at the moment and um, it's not being developed on scale. But that, that is the future and uh, it's an exciting future if you think about it. The cost of living is a major issue for many people who are struggling with rising prices. An enormous amount of our listeners in recent weeks have been getting in touch suggesting they would like to pay less tax and have more money available to meet their bills. And they're getting very frustrated that the idea of people that they feel may not be working as hard as they do who are in receipt of social welfare, seem to be the focus of all the attention for all the government payments. Why is that? Uh, look, I, I, I understand that sentiment and that feeling. You know, people in Ireland, um, most people in Ireland work very hard, two and a half million people at work now, more than ever before. Um, and um, when you look at your payslip or when the money arrives in your account at the end of the week or the end of the month, um, so much of it is gone in income tax and USC and uh, and um, and PRSI. Um, and people hate the USC in particular. They said they were told it was a temporary tax and it has become a permanent yeah, feature. Yeah, that, that, that's, that, that was obviously brought in by Brian Lennon before I was in government. Um, yeah, but you've had plenty of opportunities yeah, to get rid of it. In fairness to him, he never said it was. <laughs> he never said, that's kind of one of these things people say, but if you actually look back and research it, um, it, it replaced the pre-existing health levy and... Uh, and there was an income levy as well, and it, it was never said that it was only temporary. But I appreciate that's entered. But it's much, much larger than the yeah, previous it, it is levies larger. were, and, and it has been has been reduced over the years, by, by the way, as well. And we've taken a lot of people out of the, the USC net. Um, but, but the point remains yeah. that people keep hearing about, oh, we've mm. two and a half million people at work. The economy is booming. They're not feeling it because mm. they feel they're paying too much in tax, and they see the government running a surplus or they see the government as they see it maybe wasting money and things like the overspend on the National Children's Hospital and they don't find the money coming back for mm. them to spend as they want to. Yeah, so that's, that's a lot of things there, Matt, but let me, let me break it down into a few things. First of all, I, I understand that sentiment and quite frankly, I feel it too and I share it. Um, what are we doing about it and what have we done about it? Just in the last year, for example, we did reduce income tax uh, for the average um, couple, both earning the average salary. That's saved them about €800 Euros a year uh, in income tax, very much pushed by, by me and, dare I say, my party. Certainly would not have happened if the current opposition were in government because they were against uh, reductions in income tax. Um, we've reduced VAT uh, on electricity and on gas to 9%, the lowest it's ever been. That benefits everyone, not just people in social welfare. It benefits anyone who uses electricity or gas. Um, we've knocked 20 cents off um petrol uh, and 15 cents off diesel. It could be, could be the other way around, but I think that's, think that's correct. Uh, it's down to the lowest tax we can now put on diesel on, under European law. Um, done things, for example, like reduce the cost of medicines. No family pays more than 80 euros a month now medicines. Reduced public cost of public transport. 
eliminated school transport, for example. So, you know, that's just an example of the kind of things that we've done are uni- that are universal measures that benefit everyone, uh, including working people. So what more people. will be done in the budget in particular? Well, that's what we're working on. Uh, so as you know... Um, We'll be able to do a number of one-offs uh, that will, will, people will feel in their pockets this year, uh, in October and November. And then a series of more regular actions that will take into effect uh, in January or February. Um, so the kind of things that are in the mix, obviously an increase uh, in the minimum wage for those people who are working and earning the least. And that tends to have a, an upward effect on, on all wages. Um, will be difficult for some businesses to pay that. I appreciate that. So we need to look at that between uh, now and then. There will be an income tax package to reduce uh, income tax, as there is in most budgets. Um, but the suggestions are that the balance will be something like five to one towards government spending, mm-hmm. five parts, tax reductions, one part. Yeah, that, that's that's correct. Um, but is that the right balance? Um, I, I believe it is. And let me ex- explain why that is. Uh, so, for example... Um, what you would see potentially happen on the spending side uh, is uh, a lot of help for people with the cost of childcare. Uh, so, you know, what matters to people in the end of the day is how much disposable income they have. So if you can re- reduce the cost of childcare for um, working families, um, if that saves them a couple of hundred euros a month, isn't that as good as a tax cut? And if you can do the two, wouldn't that be very good? So you can do things that appear on the spending side, um, but actually help family budgets when it comes to the bottom line. You know, for example, the reduction in the cost of public transport and school transport was on the spending side, but save people money in their pockets. You know, another thing, um, you know, you'll hear people talk about as well is is, is the cost of education. Uh, the cost of putting a kid through college, for example, can be very expensive. Well, what about the cost of renting? What about tax reliefs for those who are renting or some sort of credits if they can show that money has been saved towards a, dip, a down payment on a house or mm. an apartment? Because rents have become far too expensive mm-hmm. for very many people. Yeah, well, and the rents are very expensive uh, in Ireland and particularly in our cities. Uh, so one of the things we do already, uh, as you know, is the help to buy scheme. Uh, so that allows you to claim back three years worth of your income tax uh, and you can put that towards a deposit for a new home. But that's um, only a benefit to a small fraction of the numbers who continue to rent. It's a benefit to 33,000 individuals and couples so far who've received their tax back uh, in order to help them buy a home. That is something Sinn Féin and others want to take away, by the way. So if you're somebody who thinks you may wish to buy a home uh, in the future, do bear that in mind. Um, we don't. We want to keep that in place because we think it's very important to help people um, pay their deposit. We have brought in the, the 2% cap on rent increases in the rent pressure zones, and that has helped bring rents down for a lot of people. Uh, so they're, they're the kind of things that, that have been done already. Uh, do we have to look at new ways to help? Um, yeah, I think we do. Um, um, uh, you know, among the things that have now been introduced is the new shared equity scheme for people uh, who are trying to buy a home for the first time. So say, for example... 2,000 people a year? Yeah, but, but like if the demand is there, maybe we should do more of that. So, you know, there's already a lot of interest in it. So say, for example, you're able to get a mortgage for 270, but the place you want to buy are the only place you can buy is 320, um, the government will bridge the gap uh, and will essentially cover the 50,000 in terms of shared equity and you can buy that back later. Um, if that becomes uh, popular and is oversubscribed, I think we should probably make that available to more people. Another thing we've okay. only just announced, which I think we re- will be very successful, uh, is the grant of up to 50,000 to take a derelict property or a derelict building and bring it back into use as somewhere to live. Um, 
you know, and I think that could be a lot of help to a lot of people. We're going way over time, but there's one last thing I want to ask you. You're due to become Taoiseach again in December as part of the arrangement entered into with Fianna Fáil and the Greens. There's a lot of speculation that Fianna Fáil may look to change its leader around that time. Would that have any impact on you becoming Taoiseach if Fianna Fáil was to change its leader, do you believe? Well, the agreement that we have is among three parties. Um, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and the Greens uh, was ratified by the members um, and parliamentary parties of all three parties. It's not a, an agreement um, between the leaders. Um, so, uh, you know, if I were to cease to be the leader of Fine Gael for some reason, um, the agreement would still stand. And if Michal Martin was not to be leader of Fianna Fáil, you'd have no difficulty in entering the government, a rearranged government with a different person instead of Michal Martin as leader of Fianna Fáil? But the leadership of any party is a matter for that party and would be absolutely wrong for me to um, give comment on it. What I can say is that I've worked very closely with Michal Martin uh, for the last couple of years. Um, we've got to know each other very well. Uh, I think he's doing an excellent job as Taoiseach. Um, I respect him. Uh, I trust him. I look forward to working with him uh, for the next few years, dealing with the problems that the countries face, whether it's housing or the cost of living. or But if Fianna Fáil were to have a different leader, you'd work with that person as well? The, the leadership of Fianna Fáil is a matter for them, so of course I would seek to work with whoever the leader of Fianna Fáil is. Thank you. We've gone over time. Sonish Dilly of Radker, thank you very much for joining us. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.